Hi, Tom. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for taking the time. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. So rate and review us and so on. Uh, You are Thomas Wright. Uh, So far as we know, there's no relationship, a close genetic relationship between us, I guess, right? I have some Irish ancestry. It's not impossible. We'll have to uh, dig into that at some point over over a We'll have to (laughs) do a little Ancestry.com session together at some point. Um, So uh, you are at the Brookings Institution. Uh, and you're director of a center there, right? Yeah, what is your I direct center the called? Center for U.S. and Europe, and I also do some work on the on, on our center and strategy as well. Okay, so you're a foreign policy person, and we are going to talk about foreign policy. Specifically, we're going to talk about the concept of the blob, uh, a concept whose coherence you have questions about, for starters. <laughs> Let me say to people, in a very loose sense, you could say that those of us who use the term the blob mean by it the foreign policy establishment, but more specifically, we're referring to kind of the players within the establishment whose whose ideology and whose inclinations, policy inclinations, have tended to prevail within the last uh, couple of decades. Um, and those of us who use the term like this, and I, I must say we don't tend to use it in a flattering way, um, are uh, sometimes called restrainers. There's a fair amount of ideological diversity among us, just as there is within the blob, I would say. Um, and uh, so there are restrainers on the left, on the right, uh, sometimes called the Restrainer Coalition or the Quincy Coalition, a reference to the one major uh, foreign policy think tank in D.C. that represents restrainers, I would say, the the, uh, uh, the Quincy Institute. And... Um, I pers- I call myself more specifically a progressive realist, and certainly not everyone in the Restrainer Coalition would use that term. Uh, e- even those left of center m- might not use that uh, particular term. But anyway, so the way this started is uh, the term blob has been gaining currency, I guess, for a few years. Uh, the New York Times did a piece kind of on the concept not long ago, about a month ago. You were quoted questioning the coherence of the blob. In fact, I'll quote this part of the the article. It says, in quotes from you, the people claiming that there is some sort of unified theory of blobdom are not thinking clearly, said Thomas Wright, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. For one thing, he said, even within Brookings, there is a wide range of opinion on Afghanistan. He supported the withdrawal, for instance, which would seem to make him a traitor to the blob, even though he is, by any definition, in the blob himself. So wh- the part about, uh, you know, us, uh, those of us uh, who use the term blob not thinking clearly naturally got my attention, Tom. So I wrote, uh, in response, a piece uh, in my newsletter, non-zero newsletter, called Toward a Unified Theory of Blobdom, uh, brought it to your attention and asked you if you wanted to talk about this, and you were kind enough to say yes. Any, anything you want to add uh, by way of setting the context? Um, yeah, thanks, Bob, so much for having me on. And, you know, thanks for the, the piece. It was provocative but thoughtful, as always, and, you know, really happy to to engage. And, uh, you know, I, I read all your stuff, so thanks for um, for for writing such great and, and interesting stuff, even if I don't always agree. I mean, I guess where I would start is... Um, 
you know, to me, the use of the word blob is a little bit like the use of the word isolationism to describe sort of restrainers in that it is something that's obviously, if not necessarily, you know, um, by design, one could argue it's not necessarily pejorative. It's used in a pejorative way. And it's pretty much used to try to shut down debate or to lump people together in some way that, you know, pigeonholes them or car- caricatures or characterizes maybe their, you know, position. And it was sort of for that reason. I don't know if I ever really used the term isolationism, but I definitely try to stop using it about five or six years ago because I thought there's really no point in uh, in using a label to describe people who don't want to be described in that way and would argue that it sort of misrepresents what they say. So what I like to try to do, I don't know if I always succeed in this, but I like to try to, you know, accurately, you know, describe the views of whoever it is I'm engaging with in ways that they wouldn't disagree with and then sort of explain why I don't agree with that or if there's any areas of overlap. And I think to me, sort of blobdom, and we can get on to your particular definition later, but I think the, you know, just the concept and the way it's evolved since Ben Rhodes sort of coined it, you know, has basically been to uh, not quite shut down debate, but certainly to circumvent debate, right? So people are sort of just categorized in this and that they all think the same thing. They think this and, and, you know, to me, sometimes it comes across, you know, as a as a shortcut for those who don't want to do the reading, right, in terms of what people are actually saying, um, because there are important sort of nuances and differences. And ultimately, you know, I think with the emergence of the sort of Coke Quincy restraint school, one thing. We're going to mention Coke. I think we should mention the other funder as well. So so well, the thing about Quincy is it is right. funded by, on the one hand, the, the kind of right side of the Restrainer Coalition is when the Quincy Institute was started a few years ago, uh, a couple of years ago or something, the the bulk of the money or a lot of the money, the, uh, the most prominently identifiable money came from Charles Koch Institute, which is a, um, you know, the foreign policy part of the Koch arm and, and, and is very kind of anti-militarism. And then on the other hand, the, the Sor- it was Soros money, Open Society Institute or something. Uh, and that represented kind yeah. of the left. So well, anyway, that's the context for those. Soros has sort of flipped and Open Society have flipped recently. And there's an interesting story there we can get into, but I didn't mean it in a, in a, in a way to delegitimize or anything. I just meant CKI is a very interesting sort of thoughtful you know, force behind restraint and they engage in sort of think tank activities like Will Ruger, I think, has been one of the leading, you know, intellectual forces behind, you know, this movement. So uh, and obviously they've been involved with with Cato and others as well. So, you know, I think that but when that whatever we call it, when that movement emerged on the scene, you know, one conversation I remember having with with Will and others at the time was, you know, the desire to have a, you know, a respectful sort of substantive debate, right? And so my own view is that we can, uh, as a community, I don't mean you and I, but you know, as a community, that's what we should be trying to have, which is to understand both the respective positions of restraint and internationalism on their own terms and the nuanced granularity differences therein and to sort of thrash it out that way. And I'm just not sure that, uh, you know, that um, the term, you know, for instance, the blob sort of does that. I don't think the term isolationism does either. And so, you know, I sort of like to retire those terms and just talk about what it is that people are saying on these issues at that moment. 
So, yeah, I, I would point to one contrast between uh, Blob and Isolationist. Um, it's true that uh, Isolationist has been applied to the Restrainer Coalition in a pejorative way. One difference between it and Blob is Isolationist has intrinsic substantive meaning. In other words, the, the means of derogation in applying that term to the restrainers was to hearken back to an actual ideology that existed uh, robustly for a while in American history that's associated with Charles Lindbergh, who, uh, you know, had certain kinds of sympathies, uh, arguably, with uh, Nazi Germany or whatever. But in any event, uh, that's a term with a history, and, and we would argue that it's extremely inaccurate, not just because we don't identify with the specific movement called the American Firsters, but none of us is arguing for isolationism. The left, the left-wing side of the restrainer coalition, like me, is arguing uh, for, in a certain sense, uh, more robust international in, uh, involvement than most people in the foreign policy establishment. I want to nurture and respect international law than most so-called international uh, um, uh, liberal internationalists, I think. Um, and, uh, w you know, we want to build global governance and so on. And even the people on the right who, first of all, tend to have sympathy for certain uh, international governance ventures like arms control treaties. Uh, they they also, I would say most of them are arguing for very robust uh, economic engagement. And so we, it's a little different. I mean, term isolationist, we argue, is flat out inaccurate. Now, the term blob can't be inaccurate in that way because it had no intrinsic meaning, right? It doesn't have a history. Now, it could be incoherent, which I think is your argument. Your argument is that uh, the people uh, identified under the label uh, of blob are so diverse that it just isn't a coherent label. As I understood the, art, the, the argument you were making in the New York Times, that was that, was that argument, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I guess yes and no. I mean, yes, um, but on isolationism, you know, without going too far down the rabbit hole, and I think Stephen Wertheim has argued some version of this as well, you know, the America Firsters and those who wanted to stay out of World War II weren't technically isolationist either in the sense that they also favored lots of engagement and many of them favored actual security involvement in Asia. They were just opposed to it in Europe, you know, and they also wanted trade and many of those same arguments occurred. I mean, I don't find that a useful term because I think it completely, you know, obscures the debate, you know, and it, and, and it has a literal meaning, which it is at odds maybe with its use in diplomatic history and it's not helpful. And so I don't see that as you know, beneficial, but it's, I don't think it's true that I, you know, either isolationism has never existed or it has existed and there are some antecedents today. I, I'm of the view it probably never has existed in that literal term in which it's meant. And I, I also think it's just, you know, I found it just very unhelpful, you know, for having a discussion, you know, that I don't think that term helps advance the debate. And I think what restrainers are making, the point they're making is, much more sort of sophisticated and nuanced, you know, than that term implies. And it's mm -hmm, designed right. to sell something, you know, to the public, I guess, you know, to try to, to, to paint them in a certain way um, that may be unfair. But there's a similarity with the blob, you know, I mean, it's one thing to argue it doesn't have meaning, but then, you know, if everyone's trying to attach a meaning to it and say there are these characteristics, you know, some of which are, are true, right, in, in the sense that there are some people who 
think those things, I mean, my, my point is not necessarily that it's incoherent, although I think it is. It's that, you know, really what we should be trying to do is basically professional analysts is to actually engage the substantive, you know, arguments of what people are saying. And I've just seen, you know, again, not from your work, but I've just seen in many occasions, you know, if you take my colleague, for instance, Bob Kagan, who's often categorized, right, as sort of emblematic of interventionism and all of that, anyone who's actually read, you know, his stuff over the last few years, I mean, it's been incredibly interesting and in some ways, you know, uh, in some ways different to what he has said before. And he's chosen, I think, topics and targets, you know, that that I think would be a big surprise to anyone who is just trying to, you know, categorize him in that way. And, and I found, you know, when his name comes up in conversation, a lot of people who are criticizing him haven't even read the pieces, you know, or they're very selective. And so I, I think we need to, that's, and I'm sure there are other examples on the other side too. So I just think we need to be, uh, more as a community, more rigorous about reading, you know, the substance of people with whom we disagree and then actually arguing about what they're saying today. And we can come on to Afghanistan, you know, if you like, but I, I think that the debate, you know, there was, you know, more multifaceted and nuanced and, and diverse, you know, within the think tank community. And of course, there's also the Biden administration, which basically comes from that centrist tradition for the most part, and they were the ones, you know, implementing it. So, you know, I thought it was an interesting story overall and, and very traumatic, obviously, what was happening. But I, I felt that the way in which it played out a little bit on the Twitter sort of discourse, you know, I, it just didn't seem to reflect what I was sort of seeing personally. Okay. So um, let me try to. Uh, um, Actually, not talk about Afghanistan. That is one big dividing line, um, and I think uh, I think your position on that has probably evolved, right? I mean, you weren't you weren't current calling for withdrawal a year ago. Were I was, you, on yeah. Afghanistan? I, I can't remember when were I started, you? but certainly, you know, in my exchange in foreign affairs with Stephen, I think we both agreed in that point, and that was like January, February of 2020, and and before that too. I'm pretty sure I wrote it in. I mean, okay. I can explain why if you like, but you know, I, I no, no, you know what? I, I, I know. I'll, I'll take, I'll take that as a. Let's stipulate that. Uh, well, what I'd like to do is uh, list several policies which I listed in my piece in uh, in my newsletter that I think are are kind of diagnostic. Uh, I use them both to argue uh, for the coherence of the concept of the blob and. Uh, to characterize uh, views I associate with the blob, let me say there is no foreign policy label we use, neoconservative, liberal internationalist, restrainer, or anything else, uh, where everyone within it agrees on on everything. There's always disagreement, uh, and and we cannot uh, we cannot expect the term the blob to be any more uh, kind of clear cut in its application than other. Uh, foreign policy views are, uh, but I, I tried to give an example where I think it's almost uh, a d the division between uh, blob and restrainers is more analytically useful than a distinction between, say, liberal internationalists and neoconservatives. And I listed four policies uh, from the Obama administration, which I'll list, which I would suggest 
got uh, um, at least if you look at Washington foreign policy figures who identify as liberal internationalists or neoconservative, uh, most of these policies were supported supported by most of the people who carry those labels and and were not uh, supported by restrainers. And I'll just give you give you the list. Uh, uh, first, uh, proxy war in Syria. Uh, there was very little dissent on that within the foreign policy establishment liberal that I recall liberal internationalists. Uh, some people wanted him to do more. Uh, Bob Kagan probably wanted him to do more, um, but but uh, there were there were very few elites uh, of influence in the establishment who said no, we just shouldn't get involved. Um, Obama's increase in the uh, frequency and range of drone strikes. I don't I don't remember uh, prominent dissent on that. That's the second one. Um, there's the non-military uh, involvement in Ukrainian politics, which. Uh, consisted of, uh, you know, on the one hand, State Department officials, uh, notably uh, Victoria Nuland, kind of visibly expressing support for protesters who are protesting the policy of a democratically elected president. And then it turns out behind the scenes, uh, kind of trying to, uh, to uh, talking with other Americans. We know this from a, a phone call that was taped by the Russians and publicized. Uh, and in their view, what she was doing was scheming to anoint the successor Regime. I mean, they talked about who the head of parliament, I think, the, uh, what should be uh, what, if the president, you know, um, should be uh, deposed. Um, president was deposed. This person did become, uh, I think, head of uh, parliament. So anyway, this was taken by Russia as a form of uh, intervention, uh, somewhat the way we see, you know, I mean, as a form of, 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 of meddling in politics. It led to... Uh, a series of unfortunate events, we'd probably both agree, uh, and this is not, it's not to defend Russia's uh, behavior to point to, to this be having uh, some causal role, but Russia uh, seized Ukraine, uh, amped up support for half of a, what, what is now kind of a simmering civil war in Ukraine. The fourth of these is um, uh, the intervention in Libya. Uh, and, you know, I, I would personally put particular emphasis on not not just the initial intervention, which had Security Council authorization, which matters to me, but the, the kind of seamless morphing of this into a regime change operation, which violated, if not the letter, certainly the spirit of that UN mandate. Again, I don't remember much dissent. I, I have uh, I, I would I, I would guess that your average influential foreign policy elite supported at least three of these four, or at least did not object to more than one of them. Whereas pretty much all restrain, you know, I would say a large majority of restrainers would say all of these were bad ideas. And, and I'm curious, I mean, in your own case, am I wrong? Did you did you oppose uh, more than one or any of these policies or more than one? And, and I, I haven't looked into this. I, it could turn out you did. But 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 I'm arguing that because these important issues, an important, very prominent set of, of, of issues uh does, I would argue, divide, uh, you know, kind of restrainers from kind of uh, D.C. establishment, uh, both liberal internationalists, at least most of them, and neocons. I would say we've got a, a case here where, where, where the blob is actually, it's a useful analytical term to lump the neocons and liberal internationalists together 
is, is that is uh, actually analytically useful. They, they had something in common on all these important things, or at least most of them. Most of the people had had something in common. That was that was my argument. And I'm yeah, curious. I mean, not not to get all methodological on it, but you know, I don't think we can take app, you know, absence of a prominent, you know, descent to some of these points. Some of which are are fairly sort of nuanced points in the episode that we're talking about, for instance, how you define the Ukraine piece as, you know, evidence that everyone was sort of enthusiastic or supported it. I mean, I don't, I'd be very curious. I don't recall a lot of restrainers necessarily speaking out on some of these either at the time, particularly in Ukraine. And, you know, the point you make about Libya is interesting, distinguishing that initial intervention. But I definitely don't remember people speaking out that much against the initial Intervention. I think Gates had concerns on the Monday of it, and by the Thursday it had come in because you remember it was the sort of siege of Benghazi that was really the trigger for for Obama sort of changing his view because, of course, Obama had serious reservations about it. So, you know, I, I think for any of these, you know, I think we, you know, to make the point, I think we would have to sort of see what specific you know, people and reports or or tweets or articles we're talking about because, you know, you mentioned Bob, you know, as an example, as someone who probably, you know, supported it. I honestly don't recall him supporting it. I mean, I've known him throughout my time at Brookings. I mean, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But I, I think that's the thing I'm sort of pushing against. It's sort of the assumption, you know, I'm sure if, it, if that title, if that piece had been in the New York Times saying I oppose Afghanistan, you probably would have just have assumed, you know, that I did. And so I think it, it you know, the, the staying in Afghanistan. So I think we do need to be uh, just generally sort of rigorous about what the differences are on these specifically. Uh, you know, in Ukraine, we had a very public disagreement at Brookings, which we encouraged on Ukraine. Um, you know, Strobe, uh, Talbot, uh, Steve Piper, I think, president of our institution, one of our senior fellows on one side and and Fiona Hill and Jeremy Shapiro and several others on the other side of it that was over arming Ukraine, but it was also a little bit more general, um, as you know. OK, but I, but I just to be clear, I'm not talking about the arming right. of, of Ukraine. I'll but I don't think Tory is I mean, I don't think Tory telephone uh, conversations were really crucial to what happened in terms of the Russian response. It was the year it was the EU accession, the EU partnership agreement. Uh, rather than anything to do with NATO or the United States, you know, that have been ratified by the parliament that then the Russians objected to. And, you know, I, I mean, we don't need to go too far into that, but these details matter in terms of how it, you know, comes out. So, you know, so it was um, that initial sort of trigger point was really between a civil power, like in the EU, that had no sort of military designs in Ukraine at all, you know, and and, you know, what they were sort of asking for, to, you know, and what the Ukrainian parliament and government wanted to do or people wanted to do. And then it took off, you know, from there. Syria, you know, the red line discussion, I guess, is the most prominent, you know, of those. And that did divide, you know, the community. I mean, I guess my, you know, and I remember we probably first started speaking about this when we met each other through the Princeton project all those sort of years ago. But, you know, the military intervention and the rules on intervention, I think that is a, that's a big topic, you know, and it's one that has evolved a lot. I think people who, uh, 
you know, were, were more uh, favorable to it before, may have changed their views for a variety of different reasons in terms of how they would see it. I think people who would generally be opposed, you know, would make exceptions. I mean, many restrainers, as far as I know, you know, supported sort of that targeted intervention to free the Yazidis off the mountaintop, you know, because it was a specific sort of operation during the Obama administration that had sort of a beginning and end. So there are, you know, there are criteria here where people can have different views, you know, on different things. But, I, you know, I don't I don't see, um, you know, I, I think in some ways, I, I mean, an interesting point you make is people not objecting. I mean, it, it is an interesting point to to argue, do people have an obligation, you know, to object to stuff that they're not necessarily looking at? I mean, we have many scholars, very few of them work on intervention or Syria. And so does someone who works on Japan or China you know, or Europe have sort of a professional obligation if they don't participate really in the restraint versus internationalism debate, you know, to to speak up on something. I mean, that would be that would be new. That would be a new yeah. sort of requirement. Can, so can can I speak to that specific point? I mean, I mean, one reason uh I mean you're right. Uh the fact that you don't speak out against something doesn't mean you you uh didn't oppose it. But one reason well, there are really two reasons I keep uh, kind of confining my characterization of the blob to kind of the the D.C. insiders, although, you know, a few of them may be in New York at the Council on Foreign Relations. But you kind of know what I mean. Um, there, there are two reasons, actually. First of all, um, I suspect that actually there, there are a number of liberal inter, uh, or liberal internationalists. They would identify themselves that way um, at at colleges across America who we don't hear from, who actually do comply with the ideals of liberal internationalism in the sense of, for example, being very serious about complying with international law. I, I find that not characteristic of most people in the D.C. establishment who call themselves liberal internationalists. Most of them supported the Iraq war, flagrant violation flagrant violation of international law, for example. Um, so that's one reason I keep talking about Washington. But the other thing gets us to this issue of what we can infer from someone not uh, publicly opposing a policy. Well, for a lot of these people at think tanks, it is kind of their job to publicly oppose things they oppose. I mean, they are hired by think tanks to be voices in the debate. And if nobody at Brookings is opposing uh, what I described in Ukraine, for example, publicly, or or and or nobody um, is opposing, uh, you know, say, any of those other things uh, I, I mentioned. Um, I think you can infer something uh, from that. The, the people at Brookings do stand up often and oppose things that they are against if they're about to happen. That's their job, yeah, uh, to a large extent. I mean, we did have people who opposed several of those things. I mean, I can't, you know, each of them, I'd need to go back and check. But, you know, Jeremy Shapiro, to take one example, someone who was very prominent, you know, consistently prominent in sort of being a skeptic of intervention, a skeptic of U.S. policy has written that. Um, you know, again, like if you look at someone like Michael Hanlon, who has, you know, uh, been in favor, generally speaking, of a forward presence in the region on on, on Russia policy, you know, and on China policy, he actually takes a position that's maybe a bit more restrained. I don't know if it's of the restrained school, but it's more restrained. And we would have a disagreement, 
you know, a substantive disagreement on that. Yeah. So there are, you know, I don't think it's reasonable to expect someone who works on climate policy, you know, to be writing about every twist and turn. No, 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 I, I don't. You know, we have we have 45-ish, you know, full-time, you know, scholars, a handful of those worked on the Middle East, you know, and on intervention sure. and general U.S. strategy. I, I would also say that when we talk about, and I observe this pretty closely for the Afghanistan debate, but when people talk about, you know, the Washington establishment or think tanks or any of that, they were mainly talking about who they saw on CNN, who invariably were not actually from think tanks. They weren't going through reading systematically either the articles or tweets or otherwise of people who were in think tanks. And for most part, I'd say, much as I'd like to think other folks are really prominent, you know, many of them would not be, you know, would not be as part of that debate, right? And so I think it's often used as a shorthand to describe I think what people mean by it is basically mm. that noise they see from cable TV, you know, talking about whatever foreign policy issue is in the news. Well, that is not, you know, that is actually not really made up of many think tankers at all. You know, so I just think mm-hmm. that when we have this, you know, um, when, when we're having this general conversation, you know, as a, again, as a community, as opposed to like you and I talking here, um, you know, we sort of owe it to each other to say, okay, like what is, um, you know, where is each side sort of coming from and to accept as a starting point, you know, that they're coming in good faith, you know, because another, and I know you didn't make this point, but, you know, Steve Walt has made it on many occasions and some others have too, that, you know, it's this idea that the blob is, quote unquote, is sort of compromised, right? Because they're all in it for their own sort of self-interest, that they have grants or they have jobs that sort of require them to have these views and, you know, that it it, it mm-hmm. is sort of inherently compromised or problematic. And that makes me pretty uneasy because, you know, that may happen and it may also happen on the other side too. But in my sort of experience of this, limited as it is, most people are coming at this in good faith, right? People are like, we're having a discussion yeah. here in good faith and like you know, sure. my conversation. With can Bernheim I can I can I address and, that? You know, we 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 recognize we both have. Right. Do you know what I mean? So I, I just, yeah, but but I'd like to speak to that. I, I I I'm not sure Steve Walt has put it exactly as you said. He may have, but here's the way I would put it, and I kind of suspect he'd agree. Um, on the one hand, yes, we think the money that goes to support think tanks has an unfortunate influence on policy discourse. And the money comes, uh, there's certainly money from the arms industry. There's money from from various, uh, you know, kind of uh, more narrow interests. Uh, There's, uh, you know, the so-called Israel lobby, pro-Israel money. There's been more and more money from from some uh, uh, Sunni states in, in the Gulf. Uh, UAE, Saudi Arabia. Um, there are, there are, you know, there is a Cuba lobby. There is a Venezuela lobby, and 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 uh, uh, there's probably money on both sides of the China thing right now. But but we do, on the one hand, think that this money has an influence, but we don't. I don't think that that means anyone is arguing in bad faith. It's not like the think tanks go out and find people on the street and say, okay, we're going to hire you. And unless you agree with us on A, B, and C, we're going to fire you. They just hire people who agree with them. You know, there was a a moment uh, once where Noam Chomsky was uh, talking to, I think, a BBC commentator. Of course, you know, Chomsky's view of this is 
uh, at least as uh, cynical as mine in terms of the way financial interests influence discourse. And, and, and the journalist was all offended. He was saying, you're saying I'm that I believe these things because I'm paid to. And, and Chomsky said, no, I'm just saying if you didn't already believe those things, you wouldn't have that job. Now, Tom, you, you can't deny that think tanks, ones you ones that you might identify with ideologically and other ones, um, including the Quincy Institute. When they hire people, all of these think tanks, when they hire people, they are usually filtering by ideology. That's the way it is. It's just that until the Quincy Institute, uh, all of the money was coming from, uh, you know, the great bulk of the money was coming from the kinds of interests I described. And now for the first time, you have an institution that uh, uh, has uh, some financial support from restrainers. But uh, but I, the, the main point is, I'm not saying anyone's arguing in bad faith. I, I'm just saying that, and, and I'd be curious if you would take issue with the claim that when think tanks hire they are uh, I- imposing, whether or not it, it's explicit, a kind of ideological filter. Yeah, I mean, on that question, I think I, I don't really agree with the characterization. I mean, I think so. I think there's there's a a couple of distinctions one can make. Right. So if we get funding for a chair in you know in Germany studies, for instance, and to look at Germany's role in the transatlantic relationship, um, it will be you know, we will have full independence and flexibility in terms of who we hire for that. I think it would be somewhat problematic if we were to go out and hire someone from the AFD for that, you know, because that would be like a particular view of Germany, like a very narrow definition. Like we need to really sort of think about that, why we were doing that, right? So I think there's a certain, you know, obligation if you're starting out on one position or you're starting out with a center, you want to try to reflect the debate and discourse, you know, that will, you know, be relevant to the general policy discussion within a within a fairly decent range, right? So, you know, looking for someone who can talk about, you know, Germany today and its role in Europe and its role in the world and do so in sort of an informed way that will shed light on the discussion. Right, that will possibly. Yeah, but it's not. It's not going to be somebody who's opposed to the idea of NATO, for example. And I'm not. You know, I, I'm not a big uh, NATO obsessive. I, mean, I think there are restrainers who 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 are. Um, well, I mean, you know, who, who, for whom for whom uh, cha- fundamentally changing NATO fast is a priority. I yeah, I, I, I have again, more complex I would point views, you but to, you know, uh, again, one of the frequent targets of those on the restraint side. But you know, Mike O'Hanlon is a is a very vocal skeptic of NATO expansion and has made a very public argument against further NATO expansion. And we have had people who have made the opposite argument to him on that. And they've had very, you know, internally, we've had pretty public disagreements. So, you know, Mike is not calling for NATO to be abolished. I don't really know of very many people on the restraint side or on the international side. Some do, but, uh, but not many who do that. Um, and I would say on the, you know, on the spectrum, if you look at what uh, people like Emma Ashford at the Atlantic Council or Chris Preble say on NATO and what Mike says, you know, on NATO, you know, they're both sort of making a version of the same critique, which is, you know, expansion may have gone too far. We need to halt that. And so that would be one, you know, concrete example on, on an issue that I think is pretty core to transatlantic relations where, you know, where I think we do have you know, a diversity of view, you know, so I think it is, 
I think it is fair to say that, you know, you have to, when you're making these, you know, when think tanks are sort of deciding what they're going to work on, they have to decide a little bit, you know, what is the spectrum of, of discourse, you know, that we want to have. But I think that is pretty, you know, it, again, in my limited experience, that is wider than is often sort of described. And it's wider in part because, not the the whole foreign policy debate does not really revolve around this question of restraint versus liberal internationalism, right? I mean, it's again, I think that's a tiny part. Of- well, well, again, I would say a true liberal internationalist could be a restrainer, but my problem is that supposedly part of liberal internationalism is upholding a rules based order, which I take to include international law, and yet everyone, I mean. Did you did you support the Iraq war? Did you support the Kosovo intervention? If you opposed them both, then maybe you are like me in international law obsessive. But most people in what we call the blob did not oppose either. And they were violations of international law. So, um, you know, I, I want to say I, 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 it's kind of the 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 influential establishment liberal internationalists who tend to fall in the in the definition of the blob as i see it it isn't liberal internationalists in principle they you could be a restrainer and be a liberal internationalist it's just that if you are you'll have trouble getting a job at a washington think yeah i don't i mean i guess i sort of don't really you know i don't i don't really agree i guess i mean i th- i mean the examples i was offering i think are of people who have views that I think would fall outside, firmly outside your definition of blobdom. And, you know, they, you know, they're very vocal and very prominent. Now, what's interesting about some of those people, right? These are people, can I just, I'm sorry to interrupt, but these are people who oppose the Iraq war in Kosovo? Well, I I don't know. I mean, we're talking about pretty, I mean. There aren't many who who did and have jobs at think tanks. We were talking a second ago about, um, we were talking a second ago about, uh, about NATO expansion, right? So, I mean, Brookings. There was genuine. There was genuine was disagreement. I mean, Tom Friedman was yeah, against I mean, it. it. Yeah, it was there, was, before there is there is disagreement within the blob. There is disagreement um, within all schools of thought. But uh, you know, maybe it would help if I kind of revisited some of this these things on my laundry list and got a little clear about what I mean. It's like in the case of Ukraine, it isn't just. That, it, that our uh, non-military involvement in the Ukrainian politics may have uh, led to the bad things I mentioned or played some causal role. It's that my ideology, I don't, I don't purport to speak for all restrainers. I'm sure I don't. But it's just we should not be in that business. It is not the job of American State Department officials to go down and pass out cookies to protesters who are protesting the policies of a democratically elected president. However corrupt we may think he is, whatever, part of our worldview is that uh, respecting the the sovereignty of other nations is important. You can imagine, and, and that if we're going to violate the sovereignty, I would like to do so um, within within the framework of international law. Get Security Council support. One can imagine uh, human rights violations so extreme that you wouldn't wait for that. Fine, but uh, I, I just want to stress, like I, at least I, this one restrainer is opposed in principle to State Department officials behaving like that. I am opposed in principle to this expansion of drone strikes, this this eternal, um, you know, kind of obsessive 
uh, attempt to head off everything that looks even remotely like some sort of uh, distant threat through violent means. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm uh, opposed in principle to the kind of regime change we saw yeah. in Libya. Um, and, and I just don't, the people in the blob, there are disagreements on specific issues and that's great. Certainly NATO expansion was one, there's no doubt, but I just don't know many people in what I call the blob who are just, they have these principled objections to this diversity of things. And I'll give you one final example, and then I'm sorry, I'll stop and let you talk a long time because I've been talking a while. But after the Soleimani assassination, I was listening to the Lawfare podcast, which I think is uh, partly a Brookings thing, right? And uh, it, there were, it was a round table. There were either four or five people. You would, you would think that this is, uh, you know, it was assembled for the purpose of discussing this really important development. This was an unusual thing. Uh, we had assassinated the most important military official of a sovereign country that we are not at war with. And uh, at the end of it, so you would you would think that, that they would take pains to have a group that's somewhat representative of at least the foreign policy establishment as they see it. And sadly, I think these people were representative and I don't remember who they were, but I remember at the end, they went around and they said, would you have done this? Would you have done this? Would you have done this? Not all of them said yes, but none of them said no without qualification. None of them said no. This was pretty clearly a violation of international law. The, the, the initial claim of imminent threat was a lie. We now know that that was not true. It was, and, and, and that's probably the only avenue through which you could have come up with some kind of semi-plausible international law justification. None of these people just said, no, we should not be in the business of violating international law flagrantly and assassinating the leading, uh, the, the the most important military official in a sovereign country. Now, they did, some of them said, well, I wouldn't have done it in Iraq or I wouldn't have done it now or blah, blah, blah. But nobody just said no. And to me, that so crystallizes what I, uh, I object to about uh, uh, the blob. I mean, and maybe... Now I, as promised, we'll we'll stop and let you yeah. talk a I mean, long time. I think it. I I think what it's sort of becoming clear to me is I think your issue really is with the international law piece of this, and that there's not a, a constituency of people within think tanks to sort of speak up for the sanctity of international law in the way that you hear in you know other countries, and I, I think that's a fair, you know, criticism. I, I think in that I think it, I I don't think. Uh, I can't think off the top of my head about many people who would sort of argue, you know, for the, um, you know, for on principle, the, uh, the supremacy or for want of a better term of the UN Security Council, for instance, in terms of constraining US action. I also think there are many restrainers that wouldn't necessarily go along with that definition too, right? But that's absolutely so, true. I'm yeah, speaking so, for so I think part on, of the left of the restrainer I, I coalition. The, the use of the term and your use of the term and what we're generally talking about is sort of a larger canvas, right, than that than that issue. And not to belittle it in any way, but I think it's a, you know, it, it's not it's not just on on that. And you know, I do think there are fairly you know significant differences within the community that sort of defy, you know, defy this, right? So I would, for instance. Um, you know, you mentioned some of the funding and stuff before. I mean, Bob Kagan's article 
in the Washington Post a couple of years ago on Israel and democracy, I think was incredibly, you know, uh, interesting, surprising in many ways, and would not in any way fit into the categorization that people have about where he is situated in the debate, right? And if it came out from someone else, you know, it would, it would, you know, it probably would have, you know, it, it, it would have generated a lot of comment. It did generate a lot of comment, but I think you know the point I'm making. It was, it was sort of not. It, it was a, I think, a very intellectually honest, you know, piece. I mean, we've mentioned the NATO expansion piece before Ukraine, which I know you you came back to. I mean, really. That incident in the square was very marginal to what was happening. I mean, this was a, this, those protests were about the uh, the collapse in sovereignty in Ukraine because they wanted to ratify the EU sort of economic partnership agreement, and Russian political intervention prevented that from happening, which led to those protests. Now, we can have a conversation about that, right? But I don't think I mean to portray it as like Toria going down to the square to try to foment you know, dissent against a regime that was carrying out, you know, the will of the state is not like, it's literally not what happened. And I think it is, I always find Ukraine fascinating as a case study, precisely because it had very little to do with the United States. You know, this was an intra-European thing that then blew out, blew out, uh, blew up because of, you know, how Russia reacted. And, and it's interesting because, you know, uh, I think it would be hard pressed for, restrainers or anyone to sort of categorize the EU in the same way as they do the US, right? So um, so I think, I mean, my main point, though, is this, you know, and I know we haven't even gotten on to, you know, China yet, but my main point is, is really this, Bob, is that, you know, there are interesting debates happening on both sides of the, of, uh, of the ledger and then multiple other sides as well. And I think what we all need to try to do and what I need to try to do more and I, I I try this. I don't know if I always succeed, but it's to really engage those, you know, arguments and discussion and to read each other's stuff and to say, okay, and it's not just about where someone was 20 years ago or 15 or five years ago, even as well. We also need to take on board those arguments, you know, at the moment and not necessarily dismiss them out of hand and have that, you know, discussion. I was on one side of the Afghanistan debate, but I, I have to say I had a lot of you know, my confidence level and my position was more, you know, I don't know what it was, but it definitely wasn't a 10, right? And it was because I felt there were strong arguments being made, you know, by others. And so, you know, our job is, you know, analysis and policy analysis. And I think for the most part anyway, and I think we we sort of really owe it to, again, I don't mean you and me, but the community as a whole, we really owe it to everyone to sort of, fully engage in that as much as possible. And I think that starts with sort of recognizing, you know, that there is a lot of different, you know, nuances and perspectives and those nuances and perspectives are important, you know, and and they're important on their own terms. Yeah, they are. Um, Let me, let me, uh, and and there is disagreement. People change their minds. There has been slowly building support for Afghanistan withdrawal uh, over the last uh, few years and, and people have changed their minds and, and people do. And, I, and again, I'm, I'm not I'm not saying that uh, there's any more coherence uh, or consensus within what I'm calling the blob than there is uh, within other schools. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just saying that there's been a lot more consensus uh, than, uh, you know, kind of in the sense of majority over, you know, clear majority support among influential blobsters um 
on key issues than uh, a lot of restrainers would like. You're certainly right that not all restrainers are international law obsessives as I am, but I would say set aside international law and the Soleimani assassination, I do think a lot of the restrainers who aren't uh, uh, that that big on international law would say, uh, you know, we do play a role in establishing uh, norms. Do we really want a world in which people f- feel it's okay to just decide to assassinate uh, the most important military leader in a sovereign country. I mean, th- that should should count for nothing. To say to say nothing of of the sheer brinksmanship and the, the, the sheer uh, recklessness of the act. Um, I, I, I just uh, and 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 finally on the international law thing. Um, one reason I focus on that in the context of Soleimani is I suspect that all the people at this uh, uh, this lawfare roundtable, certainly most, would call themselves liberal internationalists. And liberal internationalists do tend to pay some considerable degree of lip service to international law. In my view, the influential ones in Washington often don't walk the walk. And, and that's the point um, I'm making there. Uh, on, the, on the Russia... Ukraine thing, I mean, you know, and part of, uh, to get back, well, this kind of unites the Soleimani and Ukraine thing is uh, there is a, a common, you know, I noted in my uh, in my newsletter piece, some common uh, tendencies among people in the blob, a kind of, you know, threat inflation, a kind of a monarchy and division of the world in terms of uh, between good and bad. Uh, American exceptionalism, you know, uh, meddling and so on. There are also common kind of tendencies among restrainers. And I would say one of them that cuts across left and right is 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 an emphasis on looking at things from the point of view of other actors and not getting too kind of narcissistically American in the way we look at things. I mean, the idea behind the Soleimani strike is, okay, you know, countries don't generally go around assassinating leaders, but we're America. And, and you know, we're, we're pretty sure these Iranians are bad guys. Well, I, I'd like to, you know, re-examine the assumption of whether they're any worse than any number of our uh, allies in, in the region. And, and kind of similarly in Ukraine, uh, I'd like to... Um, if you want to understand, you know, there is this emphasis on putting yourself in the shoes of the other actors. Uh, if you do that with uh, Vladimir Putin, you may get accused of being a, a Putin apologist. I think most restrainers would say tough luck. We think it's an important exercise. And we would say, look, Ukraine is like right in his neighborhood, uh, A. It, it, it matters to him in a way that it doesn't matter to us. And as for the Russian what you call the Russian intervention, as if as if we were fending off a Russian intervention in Ukraine, I would say, is that intervention qualitatively different from the way America has muscled any number of less powerful states that are more or less allied with us or we would like to be allied with us? We do that all the time. We, we, we exert economic pressure. We exert all kinds of pressure on people and to, to get the president to bring or the legislature, or whatever, to bring their policies in line with our goals. And we, we when we do it, we don't we don't think uh, we don't think of that itself as such an intrusion on their sovereignty as, as to warrant someone else coming in and, and trying to counteract us. Right. So. Yeah. 
those are some things I'd say. Um, I, I, I do remember, I think, and I think it was picked up maybe by Peter Beiner or someone else on the strategic empathy point or putting cognitive yeah, empathy. Or, yeah. I, 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 I did sort of have an issue with it, I guess, when, when I read it, because, you know, it seems to me what you're arguing is that, you know, which is not a reasonable point, of course, is that the U.S. policymakers should think about how it looks in the point of view of an adversary or a rival. But one thing I have noticed with the restraint community is is a, a little bit of a reluctance to put themselves in the shoes of, you know, of allies and partners, right, and of other countries. And so, for instance, you know, if you take the much vaunted debate over 2% or U.S. obligations to NATO, uh, I'd love to see a Quincy debate that actually talk to any Europeans of their choice about how they feel about what restrainers are proposing in terms of Europe becoming more militarized so the U.S. can sort of pull back. Because I can't actually find anybody, Green Party, you know, on the center left or, you know, let alone on the right, you know, who 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 would naturally sort of support that. And so I think it would be an interesting conversation you know, uh, Ukraine, I mean, you're talking about the Russian perspective in Ukraine, not the Ukrainian perspective on Ukraine. And, you know, we you mentioned international law before. I mean, international law sort of applies there too. You know, so I think it's, I'm all in favor of, you know. As, but but how, how did international law apply before? I mean, certainly Russia violated international law in seizing uh, uh, Crimea, for example. Yeah. But but what what vi- had a violation of international law taken place before well, we were I mean, passing out it, cookies? Certainly a violation of sovereignty in terms of the the uh, the demand that the that the government reverse, you know, its stated policy in the act of parliament and ratifying the EU sort of partnership agreement. Um, but whether or not that's technically, you know, violation of international law, I think I'd need to, you know, um, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think, you know, if the State Department's presence in the square is sort of an egregious, uh, from your perspective, an, you know, an egregious act, then what, what Moscow did in terms of the pressure brought to bear, you know, I think at least is, you know, certainly in my view, Greater, but the broader, but the broader oh, point oh. is just that you know the broader point is that I think I of course agree that it's important to see things you know from the perspective of you know other actors, but it's a broad sort of world out there you know, and I, I think that it's um, which actors are we sort of talking about? I I have written you know in my previous book and in other pieces you know that I actually think where the, the Russians and the Chinese are coming from uh, in terms of their attitude to the U.S., that they're coming from a position of insecurity, you know, to try to protect their regime from what they see as externalities from our system. That does not make me feel any better at all, right, because I also don't believe that we should accommodate those concerns. But I do think they come from a sense of insecurity rather than a sense of, you know, inherent ambition, Right. I think oftentimes mm-hmm. dangerous activities come from from insecurities. Um, but I think it is important to sort of understand those dynamics accurately so we know how to, you know, respond to them. But I think people do try to, I mean, not always. And, you know, um, but I think it it's shared on, on both sides of this debate. You know, I think it's the, the restraint debate to me. And, I, you know, I've asked uh, restrainers about it, you know, and they often say, I say, well, what, you know, what if, Europe objects to your plans to pull back, not your plans, but their plans to 
pulled back from NATO? And the answer is, well, look, we have to act in America's interests and that's America's interest and that's what we have to do. Now, that's not a very, that's a perfectly legitimate answer. It's not very dissimilar mm -hmm. to the type of answer you have from, you know, internationalists on occasion. So I, I think it, it's, I'm not sure there's sort of a, Oh, oh, part of it is definitely a disagreement about how you serve America's interests. There's no doubt. I, I actually think it's in America's interest to nurture international law, for example, uh, because our relative power in the world uh, seems to be pretty inevitably declining. That's natural course of events as countries like China become more prosperous. Um, so I, I, I do agree that that the uh, the debate is largely about how you serve America's interests as the debate within the, the foreign policy establishment, uh, you would expect to be. Uh, but I think there are real differences there. I mean, I think a lot of people, what I would call the blob, you know, think it's okay for us to just do these drone strikes, apparently just forever in these various countries. Sometimes we don't find out about them. I guess the CIA ones are confidential. Our tax dollars go to kill people without our being aware of them. That's okay. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you know, mentioned uh, but, that a couple of times and, you know, but, but even there, um, I mean, my former colleague now, Pete Singer, who directed, co-directed our defense, you know, program yeah. for quite a while. I mean, he did some of the most sort of important work, you know, early on in terms of documenting yeah. that. I think he was quite critical of it in some ways. You know, I don't think he went as far as you would like in terms of, you know, saying it should be brought to a close. But, you know, yeah. important work was done at Brookings for just to take the example I'm most familiar sure. with. Uh, which is not, you know, just cheerleading this, but actually trying to have that broader, you know, discussion. So I think it it is, you know, to me, these are all, you know, debates and discussions that are worthy to engage in. I just worry that, you know, framing it in a way which is, you know, there's one side that sort of just is sort of monolithic and, you know, ideological in the sense that they will go along with whatever this, you know, the, you yeah. know, government or yeah, well, well, national security, you know, establishment wants, you know, I, that to me doesn't yeah. really, you know, doesn't really reflect what Right. But th this, I, I mean, th it's interesting that, I mean, you're, you're mentioning, uh, you know, you've, you've very, at various times said, well, you can find there, there is this person at this mainstream uh, establishment institution who took issue with that. And I can cite other names. I mean, I don't know where Mike Kazinko is now. He may still be at the Council yeah, on Foreign Relations, but he's a good example of somebody who I agree with yeah. a lot. He was at the CFR, but uh, the, the reason um, that in, in this piece I wrote for non-zero newsletter, I uh, emphasize that I'm not I, I'm not defining the blob as a foreign policy establishment, strictly speaking. I'm not saying everyone at all the mainstream institutions. I'm talking about the uh, the ideology and the people who support it that has prevailed within that establishment. And it manifestly has. The Afghanistan withdrawal is one of the very few exceptions. The drone strikes continue. And, and, and I don't see many op-eds like opposing them, you know, uh, and, and not from the people I, I would say uh, are, are in the blob. I mean, you know, these policies continue. We do have troops in Syria in violation of international law. We do have troops in Iraq. The drone strikes continue. You know, I could go on. Um, uh, and, and the reason it gets back to the term, the blob, as, as, as I said early, earlier, that it has no prior ideological connotation. What, what it refers to is, at least as I see it, is the inexorability of this, this 
you know, admittedly somewhat amorphous worldview, uh, but a worldview characterized by some of these tendencies I described uh, in terms of the influence on American foreign policy. You can point to dissenters here and there within certain mainstream think tanks. But like me, they're pretty much always on the losing side. Yeah. And that and that is what what is has has some of us uh, increasingly speaking in these uh, energetic bordering on irate tones. Yeah, I mean, I would just say, Bob, that, you know, again, I can only go on my personal sort of experience on this stuff. But I have sort of noticed, particularly amongst people in or around my sort of generation on, you know, foreign policy questions you know, over the course of, you know, whatever it is now, the 20 years since 9-11, um, you know, for the last 10 anyway, when I've been sort of at Brookings, that there has been a pretty collective disillusionment, I know is the right word, but certainly concern and, and serious reservations about, you know, the broader sort of Middle East policy. Many people, prominent uh, people who co-direct centers and senior fellows in this have written, you know, that, uh, uh, I mean, Martin Indyk, you know, wrote a piece on that a couple of years ago. Uh, very prominent Middle East isn't worth it anymore. Uh, we had Tamara Wittes and Mara Carlin, two very prominent scholars with us to it. And I think more generally amongst people who don't do Middle East policy, you could see that. And I would just say if you did a a serious, not, I mean, serious in a, in a negative way, but if you did a, if one did a rigorous study of a year ago, in terms of what the community was writing and saying about the greater Middle East, I think you would not have been surprised by the withdrawal from Afghanistan, right? Because that was where the the, 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 the view was generally shifting. And, you know, people, we talked about me earlier, you know, I started writing on it, I guess, um, in pieces I was writing on general U.S. foreign policy two or three years ago. I think Jake Sullivan wrote about it in some pieces he wrote as well. You know, there were there were um, it's out there, you know, but you sort of have to dig a little mm -hmm. bit to find it. But I think, it, where, you know, what I would more interest me than descriptions of the blob are sort of analytical pieces that really delve into the evolution of views in the different schools. Right. I'm particularly interested in, you know, I try to write about this in the campaign, but I felt the centrist debate on foreign policy was actually consequential and being neglected. Right. Because. A lot of the people who served in the Obama administration had publicly changed their minds on things, but no one had picked up on it because everyone was focused on the progressive debate, which was very interesting and important too, right? I think the internal Quincy, you know, restraint debate is very interesting, but that really requires a starting assumption that these things are not static, you know, that people are actually changing and evolving. And so I think to me, that's a much more interesting yeah. area of you know, of focus uh, because it because it's sort of recognizing the dynamic nature, you know, of the of the debate and discussion. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I people evolve. And I suppose I'm trying to hasten the evolution, <laughs> but uh, uh, but my main point is there is a loose coherence in what for decades has been the dominant tendency within the foreign policy establishment which has been uh, interventionist in various ways, direct military intervention in, in Iraq, 
aerial intervention in Libya, proxy intervention in Syria, intervention by drone in God knows where, plus we're sending special forces everywhere, notwithstanding the fact that if we keep having to send them to more and more countries, this must mean the global war on terror isn't working and maybe we should rethink. So, um, y- you know, it, it, it just continues to happen. And, and I agree. I think one thing implicit in what you're saying is learning does take place. We, most people do now recognize that the Iraq war was a mistake. Even, even the overwhelming majority of people in the establishment who supported it. Most of them recognize that it was a mistake. Uh, but it's taken a while. And meanwhile, as I suggested, we continue to engage in these other uh, forms of intervention. And, and no such consensus has, I think, developed in most cases that these were a mistake, even though uh, I, I, I think there's evidence uh, that they have been. But, but I certainly take your point. Look, people evolve. And if, uh, and if my sounding this confrontational uh, it, it inhibits that evolution, then it's a tactical mistake. But it grows out of a frustration ever since I was opposing the Iraq war and looking around and not understanding why we were kicking arms inspectors out of a country so we could invade it and look for arms. Um, the, uh, so I, I just, uh, you know, maybe, maybe uh, my, uh, if only to illustrate um, the frustration some of us feel, um, maybe I've, I've at least served to do that. I, I, I take a lot of the points you're making. Um, people change. Uh, it just seems to me the learning process is, is, is pretty slow. And, uh, you know, uh, the other thing I'd say is it isn't, in a way it isn't, I mean, the politics and sometimes it isn't just the blob. For example, uh, you know, I, I, I would think, uh, for example, a lot of people in what I call the blob, well, it's an interesting question. I, I don't want to get in the Iran nuclear deal, but that's an interesting kind of special case where a lot of people would in principle say they support restoring it. But there's some, I don't know, there's some absence of political will early on in the, in the uh, Biden administration or something. The other thing we haven't had time to mention, which I think we would disagree on, is uh, the whole, you know, whether our mission should be to roll back, uh, you know, autocracy and authoritarianism uh, in the world, whether that's going uh, to be a productive well, endeavor. We but another I know time you have strong feelings. Again, yeah, that. I think that's, a, you know, a debate to me that has been sort of, a, you know, a bit like how it's sort of portrayed publicly is a bit different, I think, to how it's what people are saying. But I, I think it's, but I, I would happy, happily, and of course, China, and all of that, I think. I mean, I would just say in closing, Bob, I think to me, it's not necessarily just that people, you know, evolve because, you know, I'm sure, you know, people in the, the quote unquote establishment will continue to say things with which you very much disagree. It's just that we, um, you know, I think we need to be having the debates that, you know, that in terms of what people are actually saying, you know, because I think those, the content of it sort of, you know, does matter. I mean, what people have said before matters too and can come in and has a bearing, you know, but I think it is, uh, you know, what I worry about most, and, and this is the reason why, you know, I do, I try to, I'm doing a, a, a CKI you know, event, I guess, in early November as well, you know, discussing these things with uh, restrainers. But I think it's really important we do 
sort of engage on the substance. And I'm all in favor, actually, of of sort of, you know, elevating these debates and the restraint versus an internationalism debate in the discourse, because I think we, that's what we want to do. Like We want to have that, you know, discussion, even when we disagree, um, because I think it is a fair complaint, actually, that uh, more traditional realist perspectives, you know, have been somewhat marginalized. And I think, you know, the the, the new energy that's there, which has been in academia for quite a while, you know, it's now there in the policy side. I, I do think we need to lean in and, and engage that, you know. So I guess I don't disagree with you, you know, on that. Um, I, and I think we have more work to do um, on all sides to do that. All I would sort of ask is that I think when we do that, it's important to do so, you know, recognizing, you know, the the presenting the arguments in a way that each side would would think is a reasonable reflection of what they're actually saying. And and uh, so I don't, you know, I, I thought you, I found your piece very provocative and interesting, and you know, very glad to to talk about it. Um, but I think that's that's probably the one sort of, you know, place of divergence a little bit. Um, but I, I look forward to uh, doing this again in the in in the future as well. I really enjoyed. Yeah, this. so so do I. I. I mean, I tried to emphasize in the piece that not everyone on the blob in the blob does does agree with these things these are these are uh, tendencies and um but but uh, yeah i very much appreciate appreciate your engaging uh and also appreciate your uh, on the same platform on blogging heads tv at least uh, not on not on the right show but uh having a, a conversation with Stephen Wertheim earlier. He's he's uh, another restrainer. Uh, he's better at sounding restrained while debating <laughs> restraint than I am. So uh, if people want to see uh, a restrainer who, who seems restrained, restrained, I'd encourage them to... Uh, yeah, well, compared to what I'm capable of, sadly, I was. Um, uh, but thank you. And and look, if you were, uh, you know, you were ahead of the curve on Afghanistan, uh, it sounds like, uh, as, uh, you know, people who would identify as you would identify ideologically. And uh, congratulations on that. Well, I don't, um, honestly, I, you know, I didn't, it is a very tough one, I think. And I think it's very traumatic, but for everyone what happens so i think it's just yeah oh it's it's a it, it was bound to in, have tragic elements uh, i think as, as it wound down and 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 the trouble isn't isn't over i mean well i won't get into it the whole other issue is just, uh, withhold, <clears throat> withholding yeah. the government's money but i won't i won't get get into that right now so um Thank you so much. Uh, I, I hope we'll continue the conversation. I hope we'll find out whether we are related uh, right. at some point, too. I no doubt if we go back far yeah, enough, right. you know, yeah. we all are. Okay. Thanks Great. so much, Tom. Thanks.